You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. reading in case i got bored welcome to tfm's star trek books and comics show here literary treks and i am just one of the hosts here matthew rushing and i'm so excited to have him with me as he is pretty much every single time we're doing this show and i'm so blessed that he is the one the only bruce gibson yeah i'm still here i thought i left but i'm still here but yeah you're right i'm on quite often aren't i <laughs> yeah it's true and you know what's so weird is that you know Dayton finished Coda, and he's still in the green room, so it's that's kind of awkward. Yeah, that's the only reason I'm still around, is just to clean up after him. Yeah, I wish he would stop eating the snacks. Right. I mean, come on, share, you know? <laughs> I want some of those pretzels that filled in with the peanut butter, those Ooh, peanut those butter filled delicious. pretzels. Yeah. Those are delicious. Man, now I want some of those. I got some right here. Oh, you're so lucky. <laughs> so lucky. Well... Before we get uh, started with the show, we're going to be diving into a Plagues of Night, as well as we got some news items to cover. But before we do that, I uh, want to say so much. Uh, want to say thank you so much for joining us here on Literary Tracks. And one, if you love the show, please help out the show. Give us a star rating review over there on Apple Podcasts. That really does continue. It it does. It helps the show grow, uh, and we read those reviews out in the show. Of course, you could find us on Twitter at Trek FM or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. There is the listeners only discussion group you can join called the Babel Conference. We've got listeners from all over the world talking about Star Trek as well as everything going on in the 602 Club. You can find us on Instagram at Trek FM. And maybe you would like to send us an email. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. Choose a show, choose Larry Treks, and that comes to Bruce and I. So, Bruce, not too much news because there hasn't really been uh, any announcements of books that are coming up in 2022, which, wow, that's I can't believe that's a thing. Um, but uh, we do have Mere War Issue 2 that has just dropped, and I'm very interested to hear your opinion on this issue. So I don't know if it was because of the mood I was in, but I actually like this issue uh, better than the previous ones. I just had fun with the whole idea that the captains of starships in the mere universe hide away their treasures like, you know, pirates. It felt like a pirate mm-hmm. adventure. It did. It did. I felt like this would have been better served if it had been like a Pirates of the Caribbean issue comic. Um, that's a, Was there anything else that you really enjoyed about the issue? Or, I mean, do you feel like that it advanced the story at all? Uh not necessarily advance the story that much, no, because they go about trying to get his treasure, and then they can't find his treasure, and then they do get the treasure, and then the story 
like like I felt like that was just kind of like biding time, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. But what I did like about it, the relationship between Barkley and Data, that they just mm-hmm. squabble with each other. I don't know mm-hmm. why, but I found that entertaining. And I also like how Barkley just... It's like just, they're the bickering Bickleys. Yes, yes. The Which, you know, like, talk about a throwback. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, they just need capes and shorts. And it would have been perfect. <laughs> yes, it'd be awesome. <laughs> Bring back the bickering Bickleys. <laughs> I bet what Barkley happened to them in the mere universe? <laughs> I also like seeing Cisco in here with Roe. I thought that was pretty cool. I wasn't expecting to see Cisco. So it was nice to see that. So, I mean, this isn't anything great or earth shattering, but it was just a little fun for me. I yeah, you know, I mean, I'm agreeing with everything you said in in the sense of like it's not earth shattering and I think I'm reading the comic and I'm honestly thinking to myself, why am I reading this? Like what is happening in this story that makes it worth my time? And that is never a good thing to be thinking when I am reading some sort of material, right? You know, like and I'm a little I'm I would have to say I'm actually very frustrated with the story because I don't see what this has to do with anything that I should care about in the mere universe. Like they're not there's not enough there. And I mean there's even that point where like Cisco shows up on his ship and I'm like none of this feels like it's congealing into a story that makes sense and maybe it will later on in the series and I hope so. But right now, it just kind of feels like a hodgepodge of like, we're just going to throw this in and then we're going to throw this. In. And I, I I, don't know, maybe I'm being too harsh, but that's just kind of how I felt reading the issue. And, and, and it just made me frustrated, honestly. No, I mean, I'm with you. I mean, it, it, it can be fun if you just go into it and say, I want to see the TNG characters as mirror universe characters. And like I said, seeing Data and Barkley kind of squabble with each other and Barkley take his backhand to the back of Wesley's head, you right. know, like you idiot. Or I mean, it's just kind of fun to see those things. But yeah, I just felt like it's not really going anywhere. I'm not that invested mm-hmm. in the story. I'm not like, oh, what's going to happen next time? And then it's just... Like Worf shows up, oh, I want to get them, and then the Enterprise gets away, and then at the end of the issue, Worf shows up again. It's like, okay, right. Worf just wants to get them. Mm-hmm. No, I mean a hundred percent, and I think you're absolutely right. And kind of the the story just kind of feels a little bit like it keeps repeating itself each issue, in the sense that like what's happening happens. Again, you know, like, I mean, like, so I'm watching the, I'm reading the issue and things end up happening twice, it feels like. And it is kind of just frustrating. Um, And so I I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I hate to be negative, but I do think that this series has not found a way in three issues because we did have the zero issue to legitimize to me the reason why I'm reading it or why I should, in the end, kind of care about it and and be invested in it. That's really, I think, not a great thing for a comic series that three issues in, I don't find a reason to be invested. Yeah, because what is the story really about Right. Exactly. Thank you. I mean, I guess if I had to describe it, I'd say it's 
that Picard is trying to be the biggest badass in the fleet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like, you know, isn't that what everybody in the mirror universe is trying to do? Like what why does that make him special? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, we we need a little something. We need something to get yeah. invested in and it's not it's not happening, but you know, we'll we'll see. We'll we'll get to the next issue and see what happens, but I'm not really expecting yeah. much. So, I I'm I'm interested then, you know, I mean, you said you had a good time kind of reading the issue regardless, you know, if you had to rate the issue, what do you think you'd end up rating it? Oh my gosh, I would say I'd give three slaps in the back of the head of Wesley out of five. Okay, okay, nice. Um, I'm going to give this uh, two hypo strays from Dr. Crusher, because you know how I love Dr. Crusher. And um, yeah, I mean, that's out of five. So I this this definitely needs to pick it up and I think find its rhythm as a series. Because right now I'm 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 just lost and it's definitely frustrating. So, uh, but Bruce, we have a great book as we continue the Typhon Pack series. In fact, we're getting towards the end of that. So I don't know about you, but I feel like it's time to dive into Plagues of Night. Let's fly. All right, Bruce. So this is another book where, and and it is very Deep Space Nine focused here with uh, the Typhon Pack. And because of that, you know, obviously we had a huge discussion. Uh, so I think we'd be remiss if we just didn't tackle right up front David R. George III's uh, kind of explanation and trying to further the Cisco story from Rough Beasts of Empire and, and really in many ways to try and give us, like, I think, some more detail as to the exact reasons why Cisco made the choices he made. Uh, and so I, I, we got to dive into the Cisco story. Uh, and do you feel like were all the issues that we had with the uh, you know Rough Beast of Empire storyline, do you feel like this book has ameliorated any of that for you? Or do you feel like it's just continued here in this book? Mm, that's a good question. I'm going to have to go with the continued in this book because... You know, when I read these books as they first came out, I didn't really care for how Cisco was handled of leaving Cassidy and Rebecca behind because, you know, the prophets are telling him that, you know, he could bring danger to them and all this stuff or strife and whatever, all that stuff happens. And it, it just didn't really settle well with me. But this time around, I thought, well, maybe rereading it, I'll feel different. And I do feel not. I accept it a little better this time than I did last time. But what it feels like in this book is I don't know if there was any negative feedback that David got at the time and then decided, oh, well, I need to sweep this under the rug and just get Cisco back with Cassidy and Rebecca and just say, oh, well, you know, we got to, we got through it or whatever. It just, it just didn't seem to play out. It just seemed to kind of peter out. Like, I guess what I'm saying is, if you're going to commit to this, commit to it all the way. And it just felt like it was backtracking. <laughs> yeah. That he wasn't, wor you know, willing to commit to the bit. Um, yeah. But I'm glad that Cisco came back. It's just, sure. oh, there yeah, wasn't absolutely. any like big revelation that was like, ah, ah, now I see why he did what he did and what mm -hmm. brought him back, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. I, I'm right there with you in the sense that. 
It does feel like, and, and I know, I remember from the time that Rough Beast of Empire came out and I, you know, because I was on Trek BBS, which is one of the biggest places you can go for, uh, you know, Star Trek literature and, you know, people obviously complaining about it too. And I was most likely one of the people complaining the most. Uh, and I know a lot of people did. I did not like the way that Cisco was dealt with. Cisco's my favorite captain and it just kind of felt like a slap in the face. And, I did not like I did not like the way that Cisco especially even continuing in this book where he's trying to justify himself to Cassidy in that he really doesn't know what the prophets have for him but he is stuck with this idea that he's responsible somehow that the sorrow that they said that he would have was The fact that, you know, these people died, there were accidents that happened, uh, you know, what happens with uh, Vaughn is, is basically all his fault. And it just seems kind of utterly ridiculous for Cisco to have this feeling, I think. Um, and that's just my reading of it, but just, just to put that all on himself... Um, and then also I get really frustrated with the idea that, you know, Cisco is half prophet, right? He's literally half a god. And yet even coming back from the wormhole, he's they're silent. And like none of this makes any sense logically as to why he would not have a better like connection with them or anything like that. I just I'm really frustrated with that idea and you know i was i was thinking to myself like that basically what david did was interpret that the sorrow idea would be the key to cisco's character and his relationship with cassidy and what he ends up doing um but i think there are plenty of other ways that you could craft that narrative and have a better understanding of what the sorrow is than and and, and okay, we'll put it this way so my thought process was this like i think it makes much more sense that the sorrow is is that cisco because he's half prophet is going to live hundreds of years and so the fact that he and cassidy will only know sorrow is the fact that well, she's going to die. Everybody he loves is going to die, and he's going to watch them. So the fact that he will only know sorrow makes sense, prophecy-wise, right? Like, we're, we're, we're metaphorically speaking, all of these type of things like that. I feel like there's just so many other ways that you can kind of go with the storyline other than Cisco feeling responsible for all of these bad things that have happened. And taking and owning that on himself when he has no inclination from the prophets other than this one idea that it's his fault. But that doesn't even have to do with Cassidy and him. Like, right. You know, so it's like, I, I just, I'm really frustrated. And, and in many ways, it feels as though, like, there's this tension of trying to figure out what to do with Cisco and him and the prophets and how to take that. Um, and 
I feel like, and and this is, I think, the thing that makes me the most angry with this entire storyline is that we slowly strip everything that makes Cisco special of him. And by the second book here, and we'll talk about when we get there, but the prophets are going to be gone from his life. And he's going to be the captain of a starship, just like every other captain. So there's nothing special about Cisco anymore. And to me, the thing that always made Cisco special is that he is clearly somebody who is and has the inclination to be a leader on a much larger scale. If anybody is made to be an admiral in Star Trek, it's Cisco. He's proven it for the Dominion War. He's able to think in very big terms and yet make things happen on a small scale as well. I mean, this guy and and this book even mentions the fact that he was ad, uh, you know, offered an admiralty and he throws it away and says no and then when he comes back he accepts a captaincy it's like well no just so i i'm really frustrated i think with the logic behind so much of the storyline because so much of it just doesn't seem to congeal for me and make sense and yes i've talked for a long time but this is a storyline that has annoyed me for so many years and it honestly continues to annoy me because this storyline is never really going to get better for Cisco. In fact, we're at the Coda series, and you know, as far as we know, it just it, it's just going to end for him anyway. You know, so it's like we never really get to go anywhere else with this character. That's really interesting. He just kind of becomes just another person in Star Trek instead of Captain Cisco. You know, like that you say in hallowed tones. Right. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Yeah, the, the, I think the thing about the sorrow is, what is the sorrow? Like, you came up with an idea, exactly. yeah. right? You came up with an idea of, like, you know, he outlives those he loves, and that brings sorrow. But yeah, I have a hard time, even when I was reading it, that he's blaming himself for Vaughn's death, because being married to Cassidy will bring sorrow, and that's why... Vaughn died because he's married to Cassidy. I'm like, that just doesn't sound logical. And I don't think Cisco would buy that. I feel like I'm missing something, though. That's the thing. That's like, I'm reading, am I, am I missing something? Am I missing the message? And again, we're going to the, the next book after this, and maybe something in there that I don't remember will make the light bulb go off and go, okay, or on. <laughs> it already is off. But it'll make the light bulb go on, and I'll go, oh, okay, now I get, now this kind of makes sense to me. But yeah, right now it really doesn't. I I don't know what they could have done with Cisco because his story does play out in the series. You know, I mean, his story is ended. If you want to take it further, I think to your point, give him maybe something different to do that goes above and beyond being the emissary or play out the emissary of his what his role was on Bajor now, and he's got a whole different life on Bajor. But then again, how do you write books, Star Trek books? You know. Are people really going to be interested in what Cisco's doing on Bajor? You know, mm -hmm. they want to see him in Starfleet. I don't mind him being a captain of a starship, but you know, yeah, it's like we need to take him to the next level, and we're not. We're knocking him down a right. level. Well, and, and the other part of this is that I would say, and it's systematic of everything that happens with the Deep Space Nine characters, is that you know the show had them going all their different ways, which was very intentional from the writers there that, you know, a life in, in military service, you do not 
spend all your time with one crew, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. But the problem is, and the conceit of Star Trek is, is that that's what we want. And yet, the Deep Space Nine series, we never actually get to spend a lot of time after the series ends with these characters all together very much, especially once Cisco comes back. And to me, just go with the conceit of what we all want, which is to bring more of the characters back to the station. Because Picard's still captain of the Enterprise. You're never taking that away from him in the book series, right? Right. It's just not going to happen. You know, like, um, and there's still a bunch of characters that are a part of that crew that we, you know, like, n- not everybody, you know, Riker's gone on, you know, but you still have the majority of the characters and, and like, characters move forward, but also we're able to stay in the, and so I think that's the other thing is that uh, the, the Deep Space Nine series really gets the shaft here, and, and I think it's probably a good place to talk about it here, but we're filling in a lot of gaps in this book because Deep Space Nine jumps like six years. And David spends a lot of the time in this book trying to kind of fill in the rationale for why people are where they are because there's so much story that he doesn't get to tell yet. The Ascendants trilogy will happen later and he won't get to write that till later. Uh, But he's kind of giving you a hint as to where all that went. And I wanted to ask you, how does that work for you in this book that's trying to tell its own story about, you know, what's happening with the Typhon Pact? I mean, it actually works for me. It fills in those gaps. And it's interesting to me to see where these characters went in that period of time. I don't feel like it takes up that much of the book, but I find it interesting. So even when I read it the first time, it was like, oh, so, okay, Kira's a Vedic, and this is what she's been doing, and Rose, captain of the station. And it was like, it was just interesting to see where the players are placed on the board. And so it it was fine for me. It worked for me. I, I didn't feel like I needed... I mean, if it spent like just if if the majority of the book just spent its time trying to explain that, that would be a little too much. But I, I feel like it it balances well. It's really interesting for me because this book also just covers a lot of time in and of itself, in the sense that it it actually takes place where certain other the Typhon back pack books I've taken. So this is kind of filling in the gaps of what was been going on in Deep Space Nine. And, you know, with Cisco specifically, with and and kind of overarching behind the scenes. Like, this is an umbrella book. Yes, that's a good way ways. to put it. Yes. Because that was the thing. And, As I was reading, I kept thinking, like, like, halfway through the book, I was like, is there a story to this? I feel like I'm talking about the comic we just talked about in a while. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, is there a story? Like, I was enjoying the world building, I guess, or, you know, what's going on at this time and, and what's happening or what has happened before and, and who's thinking of what and all these things. And, you know, even though I don't like how the direction uh, David took Cisco in, in these books, 
I was enjoying the whole relationship with t- between him and Cassidy and trying to maybe get together and still be involved in Rebecca's life. And maybe they don't get divorced, but they just kind of live apart. And I see him weaving his way back into their their life and, and not just totally mm-hmm. cutting himself out. And I was enjoying that and, and, and Jake's role in that and, and, and all of that. So I was enjoying all this stuff. But as it was going along, I kept thinking like, but I feel like we're just doing the world building and it wasn't until mm-hmm. later in the book that I was like, okay, now I see where we have a story happening. Yeah, I agree with you in in that way. And and that's one of the things that I think as much as it was interesting at the time to have all of these things kind of filled in backstory-wise because we hadn't gotten any of that yet. I don't know if it necessarily really helps this story. In the sense of there's already so much going on with the Typhon Pact and all of the machinations behind all of that and where the characters are actually are now. And then in relation to the fact that they will let David do this later on, maybe in hindsight, this book feels a little less successful than it would if he had just kind of focused on the story at hand rather than all of the filling in. Uh, Because it works as, again, I, I don't think this is bad in the sense that there is that kind of umbrella nature and this is kind of merging all of the Typhon Pack books together to kind of give you an idea of how all this is playing out. But it's the filling in in the sense of looking back to what happened to the Deep Space Nine characters and trying to kind of catch you up to why they are where they are. And I would almost rather just have more space for the rest of the story for the here and now than kind of filling in some of those things because you can always just put it off as, well, that's where they are now. It's been six years, you know, get over it. And I'd almost rather that be the case, I think, than anything else. But yeah, I mean, we don't really need to go into much detail in the book of what's happened in the last six years. Just kind of mention where things are today. I think I would have enjoyed if the book focused more on Cisco because I love, for example, you know, the Crucible trilogy that David wrote and each book focused on, you know, one was on McCoy, then Spock and, and Kirk. And I thought he did a great job, especially in the McCoy book. It's like my favorite Star Trek novel. I would love to see him just play out cisco's life during this period of time and the typhon pack stuff is woven into it but it's a cisco story and really develop Mm -hmm. and go in depth into what he's going through and why he's thinking the way he's doing and and what happens in his relationships and with the bajorans and the ds9 crew and his wife and his daughter and his son and all this stuff and i anyway that that but yeah i get the point of this book i will say that I think this did a good job of bringing in the Typhon Pack because in the other books, it would focus seem on one of the members of the Typhon Pack and not the others, where this one was dealing with multiple versions of them and showing the different layers. So I did like that part. Well, I think that's a great point, Bruce, because what we do end up with is the Typhon Pack with these plans within plans. And this specifically involves the Romulans and... Their Praetor now, 
being much less militaristic, Camamore is somebody who actually looks to is looking to make peace with the Federation and the Kitimura Alliance. And yet that's not what the rest of the Typhon Pack wants, right? And so we get these plans within plans, and man, to me, this was the best part of the story, really. Because all the machinations and the behind-the-scenes Machiavellian type of politics going on with the Typhon Pack series is some of the best of the Typhon Pack series. Like, it's really good here. And all the things that we've been kind of doing in those other Typhon Pack books come to fruition in this book to give us, you know, our biggest moment ever. Yeah, it does, because you have... I like when you said, like, you know, we have this Praetor that wants to be a more peaceful Romulus, but of course not all Romulans agree with this. So you have, in a sense, some Romulans working in one direction and other Romulans working in another, which isn't unusual. And then you have Typhon Pack members that want to go one direction, ones go the other. And so really, the Typhon Pack is a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, these people, they can't all work together and be on the same page. It will never happen. Their own species can't be on the same page. And when you have the Breen involved and, and trying to get the slips and trying to get the slipstream technology and the Romulans involved, at points they work well together, but you know that at the same time they're doing it selfishly for their own reasons and it's all going to backfire. So I, did enjoy them also like coming to this agreement, not as part of the Kittimer Accord, but that all these different leaders of the Kittimer Accord and the Typhon Pack, they kind of this, they reached this peaceful res- resolution to go into the Gamma Quadrant and explore. I love that concept. I mean, you know, oh, okay, let's shake hands with the Romulans and go explore the Gamma Quadrant together. Well, that's going to go really well, don't we think? Yeah, right. No, I don't think so. And then I also love the fact that we have Spock and the whole unification and his role he's got to step away from because the Romulans he has trained have gotten, they're the face now, and he's not as well accepted by other Romulans who are open to the idea of unification. The message is going out, but they don't want to hear it from the Vulcan. They want to hear it from Romulans, and he realizes He's overstayed his purpose. It's time for him to move on and let the Romulans do this themselves. I love that part, by the way. Yeah, I really like that as well. I think you bring up a great point with that because, you know, Spock has kind of been stuck in limbo, it feels like, with the whole reunification movement that he's been a part of and really has helped kind of get off the ground and moving. And yet... It has grown beyond him, and I I love the fact that we allow him to move forward and, you know, the, the opportunity for him to kind of be the liaison between the Enterprise and this Romulan ship that are going to go to the Dominion and explore is fascinating. And then, of course, we have the fact that this has been set up specifically by the Taushiar and Sela to create this opportunity for them to get what they need from the Dominion. And what they need from them is that they find out that there are components to their ships that would help allow them to create the slipstream in their ships much more successfully. And so they want 
instead of, you know, trying to create these components by themselves, which would be much more difficult, they're going to go steal the machines that would make them from the Dominion themselves. And, like, that's, to me, all of that was just so interesting. And, of course, I think, like you said, it puts the, the... Typhon packed on a precipice of a knife, you know, like that one way or the other, this this group is just going to destroy themselves because they aren't on the same page and their leadership in different factions isn't even on the same page. And this is one of the things that makes them so different, again, from the Federation, which is, you know, people willingly join the Federation and then align themselves value-wise with what the vet- Federation values. The Typhon Pact has none of that here, you know? And so I think that's something that makes this really fascinating as you look kind of even just philosophically as why one of these would work and why the other one wouldn't. And this book, I think, it, it, its best part is kind of helping us see why the Typhon Pact in the end would be due. Well, and it also goes to show that the Federation created Slipstream so they can explore further out into the universe. And the reason for the Typhon Pack to want to get this Slipstream technology invented for themselves is so they can be in a position of the same power. They look at Slipstream as power. And the Federation right. can't have this power Unless they have it. They have to be on par with them, at, at the very least be on par with them. So it's all motivated by really acts of war because, you know, they're thinking if we ever want to go to war with the Federation, we have to have the same technology, if not better. And so they do it out of fear when the Federation developed this as a means to explore and, you know, enrich themselves And again, it shows the difference between the two. But you know that even within the Typhon Pack and even with the Dominion, that there's all going to be some kind of power struggle between them, probably more so than there will be against the Federation eventually. Well, and I think one of the things that this does here, too, is that, and I love it, is that it helps the Romulans become uh, much more nuanced and interesting, you know, Uh, and... I really like the way that they're being taken, and I think that that's great, and I hope that that will continue. So, one of the things, Bruce, that we got in here were some interesting characters in Flux um, with Bashir and Prin, um, who are kind of in a place where they're not quite sure how to move forward, and so I wanted to ask you how you felt like those storylines go i mean you know specifically thinking of like bashir you know he's been on this mission with serena and she chooses instead of him becoming part of you know starfleet intelligence that she'll stay on deep space nine and he'll still be the you know chief medical officer there and that's what well what they'll do with their lives but really you know we get this behind the scenes that her whole goal is to try and recruit him to section 31 which you know, I mean, who knows where that's going to go. But what did you think about his storyline and the way basically he, at least right now, he's just kind of being played? Yeah. 
And I like that. I always like the Bashir Serena storyline that we get in the books. And this is really kind of that start of it because you really know, you really don't know what to make about Serena. Does she really love him or is it all a con? You know, not as in con, but you know, it's this whole thing of, is she being manipulated? Is she manipulating section 31? Is she manipulating Bashir? Is she manipulating everybody? Like, I find her to be very interesting, a very interesting character. And yes, she's manipulating Bashir because even if she does love him and wants to be with him, which I do believe is the case, she is manipulating him and pulling the strings so he would become part of Section 31. And she leaves Section 31 to become part of Security at Deep Space Nine so she can be with him. But the ultimate goal is to then bring him into the Section 31 fold. But at the same time, I start to believe, but does she really want to do that? Or does she just really, truly just want to be with him? And she wishes she could leave Section 31 behind and maybe she can't. So he doesn't know he's being played. And that's great, too, because he's so intelligent and yet he still doesn't know what's like this is happening to him. And so maybe you could say that makes him a little less interesting because he doesn't know this is happening to him. But I just love serena and how she's playing the field more so than how bashir is represented in the book yeah what i find most interesting about this whole thing is how as smart as bashir is he's a complete idiot when it comes to love yeah and the idea of he truly still has the thing that many guys have which is the the desire that he would throw it all away for what he thinks of as the love of his life. Um, and I, I, you know, I think that that's really realistic, you know, uh, and, and I think it's really well done to have him, his character be consistent in that way. You know, Bashir is a, an ingenious character, but at the same time, He's just, he has no sense for romance and he has no sense for, uh, his, his own heart. Like he, he, he is unable to understand his, his own desires and, and the way in which those things might be controlling him. And so, and that, I think it's really realistic. Well, and I don't remember who it was. Was it when Cisco arrived or something? He was so quick to want to show off. Serena, like he's with Serena. Look, look, look who I'm with. Come here. I don't remember who it was that was visiting or whatever, but he was so quick to do that. Like that was so important to him to show that, hey, I'm with her. Like we're, we're together and she's here right now. So it seems like a romantic relationship is something that is very important to him. And he may put the blinders on and just go with whatever he's got. I've known several people like that. They'll just date whoever they can date you know i'm not saying he's doing that necessarily but it's so important to him that he doesn't want to let right. her go and yep she knows that and so she can play that and not only does she yep. know that but section 31 knows that about him yep yeah absolutely like like you said and i think that's a perfect way to put it is that he can be played uh and and so and and i think you know, with uh, our characters in Flux, I thought it was really interesting, you know, with Prin finally coming to the place where she's willing to let go of her father um, and to help him 
him passing away. And I really liked this story because I do think this is another place where it is like Bashir. It's very realistic in, in the way that people struggle with this uh, decision that they have to make, you know, of whether or not to let somebody go who um, is being kept alive by, you know, the feeding machine. Um, and the the most interesting thing about this is that they reference many times here is how Vaughn has continued to stay alive in the sense that he's continued to breathe on his own. And the only thing that he needs is, is, you know, the intravenous food. Um, otherwise, you know, his body has stayed alive, even though there has not been any brain activity, which creates a really interesting, it's not even question, um, uh, like almost even morally, but it's more of like, Ooh, is there something else going on here because of all the connection that we know that he has with the prophets and all those kind of things? So it it, it really just creates this very interesting, I think, storyline as she moves him to to Bajor and and puts him in a hospice there, so he can end his days quietly, and you know having the conversations with people to go see him and everything. Like I really appreciate that part of the story because this is one of those places where we're just paying homage and. And, and really trying to do justice to the story of these characters that have been created for the Deep Space Nine relaunch. And uh, I'm interested, you know, again, to see, you know, how it, it plays out. And it really works, too, because she's so invested in trying to keep him alive. And one of the reasons, not just because she loves him, because he's her father, but because they didn't ha- used to have a good relationship and they've repaired that relationship. And now that they've repaired that relationship and are now close, she's now losing him again. But now this time she's losing him to death where she can't bring him back again. So even though his mind is gone and he's dead in terms of his mind and his spirit, the body right. still lives. And it's the final, well, probably the wrong pun to use, but the nail in the coffin of the death of her father because she knows he's not going to get better. She knows that he's gone, but yet the body is still alive and it's her decision to make to let him die. And she doesn't want to say go because she just got him back, you know? And yeah, she has to wrestle with that. So I really did appreciate the storyline and lots of people have faced the same decisions and, Thankfully, mm-hmm. so far, I haven't, but, you know, yeah. it's it's not easy. No, I, I 100% agree with you. Um, and, you know, I think that one of the most interesting things that we do here is, and, and one of the biggest things that we'll ever do uh, in, the, in the relaunch series with, is the end of Deep Space Nine, uh, in the sense that we are going to blow up the station. Uh, and not only do we blow up the station, but we leave also the cliffhanger of the Zosa being destroyed as well, and the possibility of Cassidy and Rebecca being dead. And how did you feel like this part of the story played out? Well, <laughs> this one's kind of strange because, of course, I knew this happens. So reading it this time, I know we're coming up to it. I kept thinking, like, does it happen at the very end of this book? I think it does, and of course it does. Um, but the first time I read this, when it came out, I think I was more shocked. I wasn't expecting that. I would never expected for them to blow up Deep Space Nine. But this time, of course, I'm 
already expecting. As a matter of fact, as I'm reading this book and I'm picturing them on the space station, I have, I had to keep reminding myself which space station. Wait, we're, yeah, right. we're still in the old one, right? Because I'm so used to reading books now where I picture them on the new station. And I th- think with the battle and everything that's going on at the time and the fact that the bombs are, are found and they're planted by Andorians and because we know Andorians have left the Federation, that makes it really interesting. And I didn't mind at the time, and of course I don't mind now, that they blew up Deep Space Nine. I think it works. And I remember having lunch with David George once and he and I were talking about this and I said, you know, did it bother you? Like, why'd you blow up deep space nine? And he's like, well, cause I was allowed to, and now I'm the guy who blew up deep space nine. You know, <laughs> so it's not like he did it just to do it. It's just, it just was a story opportunity that he could use because it seemed appropriate at the time that things had to move on. And this big battle's happening, and sure enough, why not blow up the station? Yeah, I think this is an interesting story point, and I've never had really a problem with it because I think what it does is it really does kind of move the story forward, right? And it does create a bunch of new story possibilities for you as well. And, you know, I, I think the the most interesting question going forward with you uh, will be, do they fulfill any of those promises? You know, uh, with with the story opportunities that they have for the new Deep Space Nine and all of that. But and, you know, it's. I think it's a fantastic way to wrap up this duology in the sense of and and leave you on a true cliffhanger like many Deep Space Nine, you know, two parters or three parters would do. This was fantastic, you know, and. I think it was really effective. But I, I think the other thing that it really helps do is it brings it to a head everything that's been going on with the Typhon Pact and just how far some of these members are willing to go. And I think it shows you just how dangerous they are. Um, and when you think about this, too, it's really interesting because obviously in many ways this is the Cold War playing out for the Star Trek universe. And this war just got real hot. By blowing up Deep Space Nine. I remember at the time I was hoping that they would rebuild a space station, which of course they did, but I was hoping that it would play out that there would be a space station on both sides of the wormhole, that this would be an opportunity to create this dual space station that basically works with each other, managing the entryways of both sides of the wormhole and that Cisco would take command of one of the stations and Roe would take command of the other. And then you have like half your old D space nine crew on one station, the other half on the other. Damn it, Bruce. That's, that's one of the best ideas I've ever heard. And I am actually kind of upset that that did not happen because I, I really truly think that that's genius. Well, I, I think that's a really good idea, and it would have been fascinating to kind of basically have Deep Space Nine and maybe Deep Space Ten on the other side of the wormhole. You know, like right. I, it just, I, I just, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I love that idea, and man, I, man, oh man, it's 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 oh, you've you've left me speechless. <laughs> well, don't worry because this universe will go away and then we'll create it in the new prime universe (laughs) who knows what will happen picard but uh the last thing bruce is that we do have kira 
end up far beyond the stars for a moment. And the fact that Benny needs help. And how did you feel about this use of of that that whole milieu of far beyond the stars as a way to get Kira to understand that Cisco is in need of more help than just, you know, getting back with his daughter. Well, I like it because anytime you play in that time period with Benny Russell and all that is it's, I enjoy it. It's fun. Um, but also very insightful. The thing about Kira is I liked Kira in the TV series, but I fell in love with Kira in the books. I just really grown to love her more and more as time goes on. And so as I see these types of stories and see how she's this Vedic and she's a different place in her life and she's more at peace and she's trying to help out Ben Sisko and she has these visions and stuff are very interesting to me. I mean, I, she's like one of my favorite aspects of the book or one of my favorite characters in the book. And yeah, it works for me. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I think it's a, it's a great choice and you know, it makes sense because it's something that we're familiar with. And I think it, it brings, you know, even more legitimacy to, you know, the, what happened to Cisco in that episode. Uh, but I also think, uh, like you said, it, it, it helps further Kira. Uh, and, you know, I, I think for myself, I really fell in love with Kira in those last few seasons of Deep Space Nine. And I think that that continues into the book. Um, and, you know, whether or not I really love her as a Vedic or not is a different story. Um, but I, I think this part of the story was really interesting. And it did make me, I think, excited for the fact of where this book would go then with Cisco himself in Raise the Dawn. And so with Plagues of Night, Bruce, I guess I'm wondering, what would you rate this book? There's some strong aspects of this book with the Typhon pack. And as we mentioned, like with Kira and Bashir and Prin. And I think the Typhon pack story is, if you just look at the Typhon pack itself, this is one of the stronger stories. But again, from what we said about the Cisco story, we don't necessarily agree with the choices taken with that character. So I would say that I give this three out of five ships that are under cloak that can pass through space stations. Nice. Nice. Um, I'm right there with you. Uh, you know, I, when I went back to Goodreads, this was rated a four, but it did go down to a three, uh, here. And part of that was some of the reasons we talked about. I just, I don't feel like the story is as successful as I thought it was when I first read it. And I think part of that has to do with so much, fill in and the, the story not really like you said I think you said this really well it's like you kind of got halfway through the book and you're like oh the story finally starts to come together in a place where it makes more sense uh, as to why you're going where you're going um, and uh, that's a little bit frustrating you know uh, the same way as what we talked about with the comics so you know absolutely um, very excited though to be talking about uh, Raise the Dawn very soon here but um, yeah, Bruce, that, uh, I think, uh, yeah, three out of five is where I'm going to hang my hat. So now that we've gotten through this book and we go to Rays of the Dawn next, I'm, I don't remember all the details of this one, 
And so I'm going to see if this book changes my opinion about the previous books or if I'll feel the same way. Yeah, I'm right there with you, man. Uh, you know, I only remember a couple of things, uh, you know, about what happens. And so I'm in that I am also trying to figure out, you know, is this going to help some previous books or, or, or does this kind of stay the course in the sense of the way that I have felt previously, I continue to feel. And so, but, um, well, Bruce, if anybody, of course, wants to catch up with you and see what else you've got going on. Uh, maybe talk to you about uh, the Star Trek books that we talk about here or anything else. Where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And I'm always up to talking about books. And even though this timeline is going to be abandoned, it's, look, we can still play in it, right? Even though, you know, this this is old content. It's always something new to go back and, and read. And you can also find me on the Positively Trek podcast where we do talk about books there too and other Star Trek things. And I'm also occasionally on the Star Wars Report podcast as it wraps up its final season is how I like to say it. They don't have seasons on the show, but it, it feels like it's the final season. <laughs> it just feels right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could find me here, of course, uh, all over the place on the network. of I'm doing... Uh, our main show on the 602 Club side of the network uh, as we're talking about all the fandoms we love outside of Star Trek. Uh, of course, there's a couple bonus shows in there. We've got Snyder Cuts as well as Assembling Avengers. Do those with John Mills as uh, we talked about the works of Zack Snyder. And then we've been going through every single Marvel uh, and MCU film there in Assembling Avengers. So a lot of fun to be had. You could also find me doing Warp 5 and The Orb. Warp 5 is about... Star Trek Enterprise, and The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And then over on the Nerd Party Network, do two shows. Um, it's One of them is a finished show. It's called Owl Post. I did that with Drea Kaufman. And we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And then last but not least, John Mills and I talk about Star Wars on Aggressive Negotiations. But as always, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.